It's Tuesday, April 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm mixed. Okay. Because I'm a shareholder of the Walt Disney Company. Okay. And we'll talk about that. We'll also dip into the full mailbag. And we'll try and make sense of what in God's name the Panama Papers are, is. Uh, but let's start with the news of the day. And that is that Tom Staggs, who is the chief operating officer at the Walt Disney Company, suddenly, abruptly, is stepping down on May 6th. And I'm trying to make sense of this, because Staggs started working at the Disney Company in 1990. He was named Chief Operating Officer just over a year ago. And that was a... I don't want to say it was an exhaustive search, but it was a long process to put him in that role. And it was widely seen at the time that this is the guy who is the heir apparent to Bob Iger, the longtime and successful CEO at the Walt Disney Company, who is going to be, well, at least as of yesterday morning, Bob Iger was expected to step down in June of 2018. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know what to make of it. When you first saw this story, what went through your head? Well, you and I were talking this morning. It's interesting. It appears that uh, the step down is a reaction to him realizing that he is likely not going to be CEO. Some right. indication from the board that that is uh, that they are widening the search right. towards other people to become CEO. We're going to open were, this up to other candidates. And you and I were talking this morning about how interesting it is that being chief operating officer at the Walt Disney Company is a pretty sweet job, a pretty sweet title, I should say. Yes, and to quit that and walk away. Because you uh, have realized that you're not going to become number one, is an inter- is an interesting characteristic to have. Uh, but then you, know, you and I were also talking. Not a lot of people remember number two. And if you have the type A personality that is required for someone to become chief operating officer of the Disney company, you're not going to settle for number two. And if number one is taken off the table, you might want to move on to a different job. Uh, you and I may have made a reference this morning to Dan Quayle, who uh, former vice president, former vice Dan president Quayle. number two. I, I said with, and I'm pretty serious about this. I think 90 percent of Americans could not pick him out of a lineup. <laughs> Nobody remembers number two, and that that might be how the chief operating officer of Disney might be feeling. That if if he's not going to be number one, he's going to move on to something else. It's just interesting to have such a powerful, what I imagine is high paying job. And just say, no, I'm done here. As of the most recent filing, Staggs, as chief operating officer, his take-home pay was $10.6 million. He exercised over 4 million uh, shares of Disney stock. So, so that's not bad? He's doing fine on the compensation side. And look, it'd be great to get Tom Staggs in a room and dose him up with truth serum and ask him what went through his mind. Yeah. And and maybe it is, I want to run my own company. Maybe it is... Maybe it's, I want to spend I, more time with my kids and go I, work in my golf game. I, maybe he's going to go work for a private equity firm. There are a lot of reasons that you would quit a great job. Yeah. Maybe it's office politics. But there are a lot of people, when you've made that much money, you might look ahead at the rest of your life and realize, hey, if you're not going to become CEO, I have... X million dollars in the bank, and I can go uh, live on a beach in Panama, maybe. There you go. <laughs> I, on the one hand, 
so I, I said at the top, I, I'm, I'm mixed as a shareholder. On the one hand, I appreciate that the board of directors is... Not as, just rubber stamping the yes, role. is as strong as it is at the Disney company. Mm-hmm. Because as we've talked about, and certainly from numerous conversations I've had with Nell Minow, you want that as a shareholder. You want a board of directors that is not just rubber stamping whatever the CEO says. Yeah, and so that's great. On the other hand, <laughs> the reality of the situation for Disney shareholders today is that not only do they need to figure out who is going to fill Bob Iger's shoes, more immediately, who is going to fill Tom Stagg's shoes? Right. This is a process that took. Close to a year, I believe, to put Stags in that position. So, if you assume it's going to take about as long, hopefully not as long, but let's say it takes another six months to find the right chief operating officer, well, then you're close to the end of 2016. And then, for all intents and purposes, you've basically got a year. Yeah. Because if Iger really is going to step down in June of 2018, then if I'm on the board of directors at Disney, I want someone in place, locked and loaded, ready to go by ideally January of 2018. Maybe, you know, February, March, but no later than that. And th- that is the immediate concern now. Makes you wonder too, uh, you know, to be a fly on the wall in those board meetings when they when the board decided they were going to open up the CEO search, did they anticipate this might happen? Right. If not, they meant you know. I like to think that they did, and that maybe there's somewhere because you know to to what you were saying about we know who the CEOs are at our companies, mm-hmm. uh, or at least we should as investors. I, I would be hard pressed to name uh, other than Tom Staggs, who whose name and position I actually did know before today. Uh, I would be hard pressed to name. The chief operating officer of any of the other companies that right. I own shares of, and right. that's an important job. Uh, but uh, the, could you name the chief operating officer of the Motley Fool? Well, I, you know, we're we're not a publicly traded company, so that's, <laughs> uh, I don't think we have. A chief I don't think we have a chief operating that's officer. A trick question. I mean, we kind of do, but it's a different topic. Yeah. Well, we we just went down the rabbit hole. Let's <laughs> let's get back out of there. Um, let's move on to the Panama Papers. Because this this is a story that broke over the weekend. A couple of people were were tweeting at me, or you know, are you going to talk about this? Why didn't you talk about this on Motley Fool Money? Someone actually tweeted something to the effect of, like, oh, the, you know, the Panama Papers story broke. No mention of it on CNN or Motley Fool Money. I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> the two largest you... media organizations right. in America. <laughs> we, we, we've got a one-hour radio show that's literally on three dozen radio stations. Did you just equate us with CNN right. and their news gathering operation? But it, it is a it is the a national st- podcast of record, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so the Panama Papers. This is an information leak, as best I can understand, and I'm hoping you understand more than I do. But this appears to be. Uh, along the lines of WikiLeaks, a massive dump of information, private information, about, among other things, uh, offshore secret bank accounts that are held by any number of people, including, most notably, the, the, the most prominent name that I've seen so far is Vladimir Putin yep. and associates of Vladimir Putin. Why anyone thinks it is news 
that, <laughs> that associates of Vladimir Putin have secret bank accounts <laughs> right. is, is beyond me. Someone tweeted yesterday, uh, so the numbers being thrown around, at least so far, these associates of Vladimir Putin have uh, $2 billion hidden in these shell companies. And someone said, I'm going to be really disappointed if that's all they have. Right. Who, <laughs> like, if, if I just saw this news and I had to guess a number, I'd say, Thirty billion. <laughs> yeah, if, it's a, if they've only swindled two billion, I'm going to be a little disappointed. So, but that kind of gets to the point of, I think there is outrage fatigue, and the best that I can uh, equate to this is about five years ago when we were still in the heart of the financial crisis. There was a, a, a whistleblower that announced that they had evidence that Bank of America was mistreating mortgage holders and it's going to be a big breaking bombshell that they're going to announce tomorrow. And and the reaction among the media and investors was kind of like they, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and it's kind of like yeah, of, of course big banks mistreat mortgage like like this is not news to anybody. It's sad, it shouldn't take place. We wish we lived in a world where this didn't happen. But of of course big major banks made you know, screwed up with mortgages. And I think you kind of have the same reaction this week so far. We haven't had any major bombshells in the Panama Papers. Maybe, maybe, maybe those are yet to come. But so far, the reaction has kind of been like, yeah, of course people of power hide money offshore. Like, it's wrong. I wish it didn't happen. But is anyone surprised that people, that leaders of, of, of countries such as Russia, where the whole history of the oligarchs and how wealth was was divvied up after the split up of the Soviet Union. Is anyone surprised that these people have offshore bank accounts? Not a single person is surprised. Well, and you touched on something that I think goes right to why it took me, anyway, a couple of days to figure out how to approach this story, which is, based on what has come out so far, this doesn't really touch our world. Uh, And by our world, I mean investing in stocks. It, It might. It could. It could shake the presidential election. We could, could we could see presidential candidates involved in this. We could see CEOs of publicly traded companies involved in this. But the information that we have to date involves associates of Vladimir Putin and the guy, president of Iceland, the maybe? guy who's running Iceland. Yeah, you know, if I was a journalist with this data, the first thing I would do is hit Control F and search for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Right, and I imagine the reporters did do that. So I imagine if there were any massive bombshells. I would also do Control F and just search for my uh, own name first, maybe. <laughs> Not that there's no Housel with one L. No, I would, I would, uh, I would do Control F and search for Nasdaq and NYSE. Yeah, and just yeah. see if there are any tickers in there. Yeah. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from John Lindblom in San Francisco, California. Who writes? File this under similar stories, uh, story similar to buy in May and go away, or other stupid calendar market timing that acts as clickbait. Since I clicked on it, I suppose it was successful, though I was already laughing at the premise. I would be mildly curious just how wrong this assessment is. And uh, John sent this a, a, a while back, but this was I wanted to save this because this is right up your alley. This is a story. And the headline of this is the stock market hates the eighth year of an American presidency. Yeah, and uh, what is noteworthy to me is that uh, this wasn't just some journalist l- looking at how does the stock market do? 
How did the stock market do in the eighth year of Ronald Reagan's presidency, Bill Clinton's, George W. Bush's, etc.? Um, but also, this was based on a note to clients uh, from the chief market technician at FBN Securities. So this is this is someone advising clients. Boy, you know. Eighth year of an American presidency. That's a bad time to own stocks. You might want to think about going to cash. Well, I so I looked at this up this morning. How many two-term U.S. presidents have there been? The answer is thirteen. How, but that goes all the way back to George Washington. How many two-term presidents have there been since we have decent market data on? The answer is four. So we're talking about a sample size here of four that we're going <laughs> off of. If there are any statisticians listening, what would you do if I came to you with a sample size of four? The first thing you would here's say, my data. here's my data. I have four instances of this occurring. And of those four, you have 2008, the last year of George Bush's presidency, which was the financial crisis. The last year of Bill Clinton's presidency, 2000, was the, the dot bomb. So, those, even you know, you have those, those two instances alone, just those two are going to massively skew the data. Uh, of, of the four that we have good data on. So, a lot of these things, I, I, it, it comes back to, I, I've talked about this before, you know, we have pretty good, decent market data on over the last 50 or 100 years. For a lot of these things, if you run, crunch the numbers and get a good, solid takeaway that you feel good about, you, would literally, you need 500 years of market data. We don't have anything close to that. You know, in the last 50 years, there have been like six recessions. In the last 50 years is what we have good data on the economy. I'm on. It's like that's not very many. If you really want to study history and dig through the data and find powerful correlations, you need hundreds. And that's assuming that history, like the way the economy works, stays the same over time. But it's always changing. So a lot of these statistics, when people and the problem with this is, I'm sure uh, this analyst who came up with that statistic. Crunched a hundred years of data or whatever, but it's not a, nearly enough when and you're felt, talking about something that's happened and felt, felt so great about it. Felt great and about it. And can go to his clients and say, you know, "I'm making this up. I didn't read his paper, but I'm sure you could go to your clients and say, um, you know, to come up with this statistic, I, I crunched a century's worth of data, and that sounds like wow, that sounds great, but it's happened so infrequently that there's just there's not much that we can go off of. So you're saying investing. Based on what happened in Dwight Eisenhower's last year in office, yeah, not really relevant to what what's going on. Today. <laughs> Maybe not the way to go. There are you know, when you look at a, a deep history, uh, you know we have uh, uh, Robert Schiller from Yale has market data going back to the 1870s, and you can learn a lot from that data. Is housing data uh, or just or stock both market. both actually he has housing data to 1890 and stock market data to 1874, and you can learn a lot digging back through that much data about booms and busts and human behavior. But once you start getting into something specific, like if the stock market rises 10% one year, what is it likely to do the next? And now you're comparing stock market data from 1880 to 2016. That's where I think you get, like, there's, it's not remotely comparable. Even when you go back 50 or 60 years, you start dealing with a lot of apples to oranges. I was... Uh this was a few weeks ago, but I was watching television. It was it was channel flipping, and the movie Wall Street was on. And uh, my oldest daughter walked in the room and had a question for me, and then looked up at the TV. And it was one of those scenes in Wall Street where the ticker is going by, and of course, 
the film is set in the late 1980s, so all of the tickers have fractions. Fractions, yeah. And she's like, what's this? And I was explaining it to her, and she was like, wait, what? Yeah. Why are there fractions? I'm like, well... Let me pull out my abacus and yeah. show you how this works. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.